Well, good morning, church. As Nate said, my name is Christian Brewer, and let me just say how much of a joy I count it to be bringing God's Word to you this morning. Uh, I love this church dearly. I love the people in it. Even if I don't know you, I love you just because you're part of this church here. Um, I've been a member here for seven years now, and I spent the last two and a half, as Nate said, in RTS Charlotte with my, my beautiful bride, Courtney. Um, we met here. We didn't get married here, but we met here, fell in love here. Uh, a testament to God's goodness is her love, and a testament to this church is just the people in here that have encompassed me in my life from a friend since I was six to a teacher since I was eight to people I went to high school with to countless men in this congregation that have showed me what it means to be a godly man of faith, and I just count it a great privilege to be with you this morning. Our reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. This is Luke's account of the Great Commission. He says it twice, once in Luke 24 and here again, and you're seeing a sort of changing of the guard, a a new era emerging in redemptive history here in these brief verses. So I ask that you would give attention to God's word. So when they, that is the apostles, had come together, they asked him, that is Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that will neither fall nor fade away for all time. But I ask that you would now send your Holy Spirit and give your people here in your church eyes to see and ears to hear Christ speaking to them through this word. Nourish us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, whatever sector of employment you're in, whether it's private sector, government, nonprofits, even ministry, I think there's one aspect, one thing that I can all, we can all say is terrible, and that's meetings. Especially now in an age of Zoom meetings, we seem to just be in meetings nonstop. 24-7, and they're all just a meandering cacophony of mumbling nonsense. <laughs> no one really enjoys a meeting. We all leave confused and befuddled and tired. And yet, as much as we loathe these meetings, particularly Zoom meetings, meetings are necessary to the inherent structure and functionality of any organization. If, if done well, a meeting will not only keep people on task, 
keep people accountable, but meetings will also act as a sort of target, a, a, a lens through which we can refocus our goal, why this organization is an organization. We all know that ADD or ADHD is really just 20th century talk for being human. We all stray, we all get distracted. We all need those times to smack us back into clarity. We all know what it's like to stare at a computer screen long enough or go through the humdrum of life of waking up, dropping your kids off, going to work, wash, rinse, repeat over and over again. And suddenly you find yourself stuck or you find yourself miles off from the original target. Well, today I think God's word to us brings a sort of clarion call, something to clear up the tunnel vision, something to, if you're a, a glasses wearer like myself, to take off the mask for just a minute and let your vision clear up. It's so easy for us to let that fog sink in, to just embrace it as the, the new normal, perhaps the word of the year, the new normal. We listen to enough of the surrounding culture. We listen to um, voices all across the world, and we find ourselves overwhelmed, and we think, this must be it. I must have made it. You know, you've got the car, you've got the two kids, maybe the eight kids. Your bank account looks all right. And you seem to think, this must be it. This must be what I'm on this earth for. Or perhaps you're totally unlike that and your bank account never looks full. Your family's not what you thought it would be. Your work is constantly demanding and you're thinking to yourself, I'm never going to make it. Well, I think the word today shows that both of those are wrong. Our, our success, our goal is not found in the things of this life, but Christ himself gives us a very specific task. In our text today, we're seeing that our task, the, the mission of the church, is the Spirit-empowered witness to the nations, all of which is superintended by our ascended and seated King. So this morning, we're going to be looking at all of those points from the Spirit empowering us, our witness, our breadth to the nations, and lastly, our ascended King. But as we start, we're first going to look at the ignorance of the apostles, the ignorance that they bring to their risen Lord. You'll see there in verses 6 and 7, the, uh, Christ has just risen from the dead. He's appeared to them after 40 days for what will now be the last time. And you know that they're thinking, this has got to be it. This is the day of the Lord. This is that day that all the prophets, Moses, they all look forward to when our king would finally come and make things right and substantiate Israel as the true nation. And yet we see that the Lord begins, Christ himself begins to correct this conception a little here and a little there. They've got the right words. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? 
They've got the right words. Lord, restoration, redemption, the kingdom. And yet, they've got all the wrong concepts. One New Testament commentator, Daryl Bach, says that the disciples are not even thinking in missional terms here. Their question reflects a nationalistic concern for Israel's vindication and the completion of the promise. And so little by little in these passages, in this passage before us today, the Lord is going to contort and correct the misconceptions that the apostles are bringing today. He contorts and corrects our misconceptions of what our mission is here. And he starts, first and foremost, as Christ, with the correction that we think we know when the kingdom is coming. Look there in verse 7, Jesus says to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Only the Father knows, he says, when these things will happen. Only the Father can say when the kingdom of God will be restored. You kind of get the sense that these apostles are like the kids in the back of the car on a road trip. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? They have no desire to wait. They have no even idea of the entire process of getting from Nashville, Tennessee to Denver, Colorado. They don't know what it takes to get there. They just want it to be done. They want to enjoy the fruits of something they have no desire to labor for. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're just like that too. We're just like those kids in the car. We're just like those disciples before Jesus. We want our reward here and now. I may not be asking for the kingdom of Israel. You may not be asking for a nationalistic kingdom, but what's a little peace a little comfort. Is that too much to ask? We all want to establish our own little kingdoms here and enjoy the fruits of their fruition. And all throughout the Gospels, just as in our passage today, Jesus warns his disciples. He warns them to not have false assumptions about what the kingdom coming looks like. To not rest on their laurels that they might think that the kingdom has finally come. We could go and look at Luke 17 or Luke 21 or corresponding passages in Matthew and Mark, but one, one passage I think gets at the heart of this is in Luke 12, 35 and 36, where Jesus tells his disciples, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So part of Christ's warning is, do not ever think that your work is over. Don't let life tell you that you've made it, that a house in the suburbs is the place to be that you have finally done the Lord's work and can kind of sit back and enjoy life? No, he says, as we see in Luke 12, that you must be ready to answer the door. 
See, the bridegroom is coming, and when he knocks, he will not wait to be answered. Only those who come will be allowed in. And so part of our ignorance of not knowing when the kingdom is coming, part of our inability to know when the Father has ordained the end of time is an exhortation to stay ready, an encouragement to say that you will be doing this till the end of time. This is your mission. John Calvin had this to say that we only know what God has revealed. He has not revealed the last time, but what he has given us is time. So God has called us to a mission here that we are to take up. So if his first correction, that is Jesus' first correction was for the, the time frame of this restoration, the second and the third correction are on the how this restoration takes place. So for our second point, we're going to be looking at the spirit-empowered nature of this mission. You'll see that right at the beginning of verse 8. But you will receive power when this Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, right at the, in, in, hidden within the apostles' question is the assumption that they were totally passive partners. They were people who enjoyed the labors without actually being engulfed within the labor. Lord, will you at this time? And here we see the Lord saying, well, yes, I will, but you as well. You are my laborers. By my spirit, I am making you my laborers. See, this is that promised spirit that we see since, since of old when Moses thought of a prophet of, who would speak through the spirit in a new way of a time when all of God's people would have this spirit. We see judges, kings, prophets, even Christ himself being filled with this spirit and now Christ is promising, you too will receive this same Spirit. But unlike the Spirit of old, the Spirit that empowered people to do great works, Samson, various judges, David, Solomon, the Spirit now gives us, the people of God a particular boldness, a particular courage to go out and do the Lord's work. I think of the story in 2 Kings 6 where Elisha is sitting in the city surrounded by the armies of Persia, or the Assyrians, surrounded by the armies of the Assyrians, and he's got a servant boy with him, and his servant's Basically, like, yo, Elisha, what's up? We're surrounded by the enemy. There's nowhere we can go. And Elisha prays and says, Lord, would you open his eyes? And as soon as he prays, the servant's eyes are opened. And it says that 10,000 upon 10,000, myriads of myriads of angels and fiery chariots surrounded the armies of Assyria. Well, we don't have just angels. We don't have just guardian angels. We have the very Spirit of God himself that surrounds us. We are given courage and power to go out. 
You think of a deputy who carries the same authority of the sheriff, of the one who deputizes him to go out. As deputies, we often feel more like, more like Barney Fife, for sure, but even Barney Fife still carries the same authority as Andy. So we too, you, members of the church of God, have been deputized to go out to proclaim the message, to proclaim Christ's victory. And so we see this power is not just for any and everything. This power is not a out of context, I can do all things with Christ who strengthens me to make it to the NBA. This is not even specifically for the miraculous works that the apostles would go on to do in Acts. Now what this power was for was explicitly to be witnesses. We have been given the Spirit of God to be witnesses. In the middle of verse 8 there, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So if the second conception, second correction was for the how being a Spirit-empowered body of God's people going forth, the second how is that this mission is fulfilled through the witnessing of Christ Jesus. The ordinary kingdoms, physical powers, those are spread through brute force, through armies, through conniving and human wisdom. However, we are called as God's people to spread his kingdom through the witness of Christ. If you look back at Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, we see Christ himself comes down to witness to the kingdom of God. Christ's all-consuming passion in this earth was to proclaim that the kingdom of God is coming. And he's even so bold as to say after reading Isaiah that he himself is the fulfillment of God's kingdom. Now we are in turn to go out and proclaim that we have seen the risen king. We are witnesses to his work. See, now we begin to see that we are given the mantle of Christ. As his witnesses, we are given the mantle that rested upon Jesus Christ here on this earth. Christ witnessed to the coming of the kingdom. We witness to the risen and ascended king. This is an, almost an Elijah and Elisha type relay here where Christ, the one true great prophet about to ascend into the heavens, finds a new body, a new people, and grants them his spirit to be witnesses, to partake of the same work of his. So now, Christian, you must ask yourself, what kind of witness are you? See, as a baptized member of God's church, 
you have no option to be a witness. It is who you are as those who enter through these doors Sunday after Sunday. So are you a true witness or false witness? Does your life, do you carry God's name in such a way that it proclaims Him as the Lord alone? Or do you bear His name in vain and live as if He is just some other wise teacher or powerful force? You must recognize that you, as a member of God's church, are given the Spirit-empowered task to witness to this King. There is no time in life where you are not witnessing. So let me ask you again, what kind of witness are you? Does your family reflect that witness? Does your conversation reflect that witness? Do the, the little thoughts that you go to when you don't think anyone else is paying attention to those thoughts, reflect the witness of Christ. So as this mission is put out by Spirit-empowered witnesses, the Lord also gives us a new demographic, a new set of coordinates to pursue this mission. Jesus gives us the the very ends of the earth. That's our our fourth point today, going to the nations, a spirit-empowered witness to the nations. We see that in the very end of verse 8 there. It's from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And of all the misconceptions that the apostles brought, that a first-century Jew would have brought to this message this would have been the hardest for them to grasp. You're telling me that the Romans who have captivated our people and have tortured us and persecuted us, they're supposed to share in this? Forget the Sumerians. Forget those who are half Jew. We could maybe welcome them in, but the Romans? You think about Jonah, that prophet to Nineveh, he didn't, he didn't run from God because he was scared. In fact, chapter 4 tells us why Jonah runs. And Jonah runs because he knew that God was gracious. He knew that God would forgive their sins. And he knew the last thing he wanted to do as someone who felt the persecution of the Assyrians, seen his family shipped off, his people put under captivity, the last thing he wanted to do is go and preach a gospel to them that would save them. And here we see Christ telling his apostles, you are to go to everyone, tribe, tongue, and nation, and tell them about me. And we see that even through Acts, the apostles have a hard time understanding this, even after this ascension. And in fact, All of Acts 8 through 11 is committed to showing how the Lord had to clarify for people like Peter exactly how widespread this gospel was. 
And yet of all the promises in the gospel, of all the, the graces that the Lord gives in Jesus Christ, one that remains a constant all throughout the line of Scripture is that the nations would be blessed, that the nations were included If you go back to Genesis 12, you'll remember that part of the Abrahamic promise wasn't just for land, wasn't just for people, but it was the nations would be blessed through you. The nations would be blessed. This was a defining aspect of God's mission since the very beginning. Blessing to the nations. And as a defining aspect of God's mission, we must be wary that we do not become myopic in our understanding. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 3. He says that the mystery of the gospel, and he could have said anything here. He could have said the mystery of the gospel is that you were chosen before the foundations of the world. Or that somehow in God's all-consuming wisdom and knowledge, he used the cross to save us. Now, what does Paul say? He says the mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the mystery of the gospel, that everyone is included. So we must be careful, brothers and sisters, we must be careful not to fold ourselves in We must be concerned with always being outward-facing, of always welcoming in the stranger, of turning our attention from our, our church, our tightly cloistered friends that we have, and facing out with open arms. And as we think about this task that Christ is presenting before us, it seems almost impossible. I mean, sure, the apostles did it, but they were, they were there with Jesus. They, they healed people. They were the rock stars of the faith. How am, I, how am I able to do something like this? I can barely keep my own life together as it is. Well, our fifth and final point, our correction that Christ offers his disciples, that is that it is not just left up to them. We see that in verses 9 through 10 where it says that he was lifted up out of the cloud. And the ascension here is an often forgotten part of our redemption. As evangelicals, we love to talk about the crucifixion, the resurrection, You know, we forget that the ascension was just a central part of his work. And this isn't just the the final piece of the puzzle. This isn't the way the Son of God gets to God. He just ascends. It's not a final proof that that Jesus does to prove he's God. It's not even Christ stepping behind the curtain and saying, all right, you guys got this. I'm going to sit back here. No, this is Christ ascending to the heavenly throne. This is Christ ascending and seating at the right hand of the Father. 
And it's important that he sits because when he sits, it means his work is over. It means that he's accomplished all that he needs to, all that he was sent to do. And now he sits and orchestrates and governs bringing all of that into completion, all of that into consummation. Calvin says this, that in his ascension, Christ sits on high. He transfuses us with his power. He quickens us to spiritual life. He sanctifies us, adorns us, keeps us safe, restrains the raging enemies of his cross and of our salvation, and finally holds all power in heaven and on earth. See, this ascension shows that it is not up to you. But Christ has called you to be partakers of the fruits of the mission of God. And here we see a a wonderful Trinitarian foundation, not just of creation, not just of salvation, but the entire mission of God is undergirded by our one and triune God. Remember, the, the Father has set the final day The Son governs and orchestrates from heaven and the Spirit empowers and substantiates the entire work. Wherever we are, whether it's in Cornerstone or Nashville or New York City, the great human temptation is to say, it's all on us now. We've got to figure this out. And the church has been marked time and time again of people who say, we've got to change something to really do our work here. But God gives us a heavenly perspective where Christ is seated on the throne and his footstool is not just Jerusalem. It's not just Judea. His footstool is the entire earth. The whole earth is his footstool. And at the very end of our passage this morning, we see a final encouragement from the angels of God. This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going. And here we see that final assurance that one day this mission will be complete. We're not just hamsters that God has set in a a wheel to spin over and over and over again. But this mission has an end point. Christ will return. Now, as you look at these bookmarks here, it's easy to read those names and see people planting churches and bringing college students to Christ and planting churches where the gospel has not been heard in many years. It's easy for us to read those names and think, yeah, but... I don't see my name on there. How am, I, how am I to do this? How am I fulfilling the mission of God? I want to remind you that this, this life together, this church life together is not like a pro basketball team. It's not the LA Lakers where you've got two all-stars and a bunch of scrubs to pick up the slack on the sides. Now, as God's 
Church, you are part of one body. Do not let the hand say to the foot, what are you doing? Or the eye to the nose, what are you doing? We all need each other. We are each other's supporting cast. The work is not possible without your work. Nate mentioned the, the gifts, tithes, prayers, all of these things that seem so mundane this side of heaven are the very means that God uses to ensure his mission is complete. Charles Spurgeon once said that he would not be surprised if he found when he got to heaven that all the success of his ministry was due to the prayers of one lonely saint. Or John Calvin said that in prayer we dig up the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel. In prayer we dig up the things that God has promised to us, promised to his church. So church, let me encourage you that as you pray, as you give, as you witness to the Lord day in and day out through your life, you are fulfilling this commission. God's commission for a spirit-empowered witness to the nations extends to every one of us, not just to the apostles, not just to missionaries. Being baptized in the church, you are now deputized as Christ's witnesses. But not everyone is called into the foreign lands to bring glad tidings of joy. But we're all called to live faithful lives of witnessing to Christ's death and resurrection. On that last day when we all come together, we're standing before the bridegroom adorned in all of his glory, we'll be amazed at the expanse around us of witnesses and saints. And you'll be able to see, perhaps for the full, first time in full clarity, that your prayer and 6 a.m. on a Monday morning with a cup of coffee was, was the prayer that God used to bring this soul to heaven. Or perhaps that dollar that you gave, not even thinking about it, was the dollar that ensured this ministry all in China was able to go forth. And we'll see that as one body we were brought into glory. And what a day that will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us by ourselves, that you in fact give your body the very spirit of God and that you sit enthroned and orchestrating it all from heaven. Father, would you give us new courage today to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.